This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to get into this issue that uh, we've been talking about on CHML News today. Now that we're into the summer season and it's getting nice and warm and uh, we have pop-up patios all over the city right now, which I think is great, been advocating for that for quite some time. One of the things that was supposed to be part of that was, of course, live music. They call it amplified music, uh, simply because, obviously, acoustic music, and we get into decibel, decibel things and things of this nature, but it was supposed to be part of this. And the city council, I thought, in their wisdom, said, yeah, let's try this. Let's let's see how the live music works on this. Well, a group of neighborhood residents uh, have decided to file a petition with the Ontario Municipal Board to block the implementation of that bylaw. And as soon as that happens, of course, you know how the OMB works. We've been talking about that for years on this show. You know it's going to be probably months before they even get around to hearing this appeal, which means in all likelihood you're not going to get live music on patios in Hamilton. So much for being Music City. Jason Fires, the counselor for the downtown area where a lot of those patios are located. He's also been one of the strong advocates for the uh, the music on the patio program. He joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about what happened and what we're going to do going forward. Counselor Farr, how are you doing today? It is a beautiful day and a great day to be on a patio. Wouldn't it be nice at 0.6 decibels to hear some jazz in the background or an acoustic band or something like that? However, it's all for naught this season because of this appeal, Bill. Well, I mean, if I can uh, quote Don McLean's classic song, American Pie, is this the day the music died in Hamilton? I think when they, under the wire, under the 30-day uh, appeal process, uh, issued the letter, uh, the appellants, familiar to OMB appeals, particularly with waterfront development, and uh, familiar to being unsuccessful with those appeals, and uh, unfortunately a price tag that's around a half a million dollars in outside legal on behalf of the taxpayers of the city of Hamilton with those unsuccessful appeals. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, it, it was the day was probably uh, last Thursday, I think. So what happened? Did you see this coming? Well, I mean, there were uh, people that are a part of the appeal that were delegates uh, of the few. I think there's maybe three or four delegates when we uh, passed this and debated this at planning committee. Uh, And when you consider it was a two-year process and there was plenty of engagement, and then there was engagement that followed uh, um, one of our debates. uh, So we added on on the engagement piece. Four is not a lot, but uh, part of the the four are certainly part of this appeal. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I said it was disturbing or distressing. It, it's disappointing, I think, was the word. And, and it is disappointing. And all, all that said, Bill, of course, currently we have this Ontario Municipal Board appeal process. Um, and uh, any resident is well within their rights. And, certain, and, and I have to, have to obviously respect those rights. However, I thought we did a pretty good job. And, I mean, when you see so few people, uh, and when, when you consider, uh, uh, you know, that, that we are trying to brand ourselves Music City, this is Canada 150. We have an exploding rejuvenation, particularly in the downtown, of restaurants, 28 new restaurants, many of them with patios just last year alone, and more coming. And pockets of our community in the core, like Hess Village, which is very established for entertainment, uh, a little Augusta, the waterfront, James Street North, you know, a lot, I could tell you, if not all, almost all, we're very much looking forward to taking part in this uh, in this uh, uh, amplified music on patio. Well, and, 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 and becoming a big city and doing what so many other big cities already do. Well, yeah, and, and when I started advocating for this uh, a year or so ago, it was after we had gone to visit our daughter up in Barrie, where this is already happening. I thought, this is fabulous. And hey, nobody's complaining about this. I'm sure there's some people that don't like it, but it was it was for the betterment of the community. And I said, we got to try this. And I know you and I talked about this, and, and you really championed this on city council. Uh, there's there's never going to be a situation where everybody's going to be happy about this. But what this does, I think, Jay, is this comes right down to an old argument about who owns the waterfront. Is it just the people who live down there, or does it belong to the city? Uh, Well, I mean, we have a mandate and have had a mandate for some time to bring everyone to the waterfront, not just those in the North End. Certainly there are a large volume of North Enders, and you reported this uh, about a month and a half ago, some of my statements that are very, very supportive of the development that's going on and what's included in that development. The amenities that come do include, you know, commercial uh, enterprises that will more than likely, particularly when you consider the setting, include outdoor patios. And so that's just one part of it. I mean, this this amplified uh, commercial patio music uh, bylaw that we've adjusted and made much more contemporary 
uh, actually is citywide. It stretches from far and wide, and those are the kinds of, you know, this is who we're trying to appeal to. Yeah, but you but know, having said that, I get your point about that, and, and I don't want to just, you know, focus on Sarcoa because that seemed to be the lightning rod for a lot of this. But I know that Dean Collette over in Hess Village and other folks right around town are, are pretty ticked off about this as well. And and, and 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 in as much as this is a citywide bylaw, let's call it what it is here. Most of the the opposition from this is from the North End, and a large, large majority of North Enders are very pleased with what we're doing. Not just uh, as specific to the issue we're talking about today, but uh, there's some wonderful amenities that we have now, growing amenities in the near and um, immediate future. And and I, you know, almost everyone I talk to, we're talking about a handful of people here who tend to regularly appeal anything connected to or some things connected to uh, waterfront development. And this is this is a small piece, a very small piece, when you consider, you know, $20 million in investments and, uh, you know, uh, Pure 8 uh, designs that are ready to go and real estate uh, uh, acquisitions that are ready to happen and, and certain elements of the plan that have been a part of a very broad engagement that probably maybe LRT is the only thing we can compare uh, to public engagement at the level that we've seen. And, 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 and like I say, when you engage like that, Bill, you can clearly articulate who's in favor and who's not. And it, it is a large majority of people who were very much looking forward to this small piece, which is really just an extract or even a, a byproduct of, uh, of a bigger picture of what we're doing, not just in the waterfront, but as it relates to uh, patio music across the city, like I say. Let's, let's talk about what the city wanted to see happen here, okay? Because I want to put this in perspective. Uh, when we talk about amplified music on, on patios in, in some areas, and, and by the way, there's a limited number, but I mean, yes, certainly Sarkar would have impacted Hess Villagewood. Uh, you, you never envisioned, nor were you anticipating, this was going to be some establishment that was going to play the box set of Megadeth at, uh, at a full volume for the whole summer. I mean, there, there were some step stipulations that were put in place here. Yeah, you would think with this appeal that how you've just, uh, you know, uh, described it was exactly what we as a council and the mayor proposed to do, which is so far from the truth. 0.6 decibels is probably as loud as the conversation you and I are having right now. It's, you know what? I looked it up. You know what it is? It's about the sound of a dishwasher. Yeah, in the other room. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even standing next to the dishwasher. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's non-invasive. It's not until 2 o'clock in the morning. I said it on your show a year or so ago when we talked about this initially. We're not pumping up the jams until 2 o'clock in the morning. We have to separate facts from fiction, to quote my friend and colleague, uh, Councillor Marula from Ward 4, and this is so far from, you know, the city coming forward and, and giving a great big thumbs up to all-night dance parties. This is about creating an ambiance and doing what other cities do and in, in providing for a, a, a more pleasing and uh, a, a wonderful atmosphere on outdoor patios. This is not unique to Hamilton. In fact, what's unique to Hamilton is that we're not playing music or not allowing the odd band or special event to occur on an outdoor patio to a reasonable hour, 11 or, or, or midnight on special occasions. So it, it really is. That's that's why I'm a bit I'm a bit put off by this particular appeal, although I respect the right for an appeal. It's just a matter of time uh, before the new appeal process uh, comes through. The OMB isn't the OMB anymore. It's a local tribunal, which is touted through the province now that they've, they've gone through this ratification just in mid-May, I guess it was, uh, for a much uh, fairer and faster process when we have appeals like this. And so, unfortunately, that's not in place right now. And that's what's the distressing part here. Not that folks are appealing, but the fact that the appealing process takes so long. And, and that's a bit discouraging because here we are on a beautiful day like this talking about how we can add to the ambience of patios across the city with a new bylaw that we worked two years on. And unfortunately, we're going to miss the boat on, on, on this Canada's 150th birthday. And with all the great celebrations in Hamilton, this music city, this music mecca uh, uh, that we've had planned. Just uh, for, the, for the sake of, of reminding me here, sorry, I got my, my dates clear on this. When did City Council actually pass this proposed bylaw? I, I know about the pop-up patios, but about the music as well, the revised well, path. 
I don't have the date, but the the, the I'd say about a month a month or six weeks ago, Bill. And but the the process, like I say, took about a year and a half. Yeah, it did. But uh, I I find it interesting that they waited until the last possible minute to file this. Uh, had they filed this a month before, there's a possibility it might have been heard and still salvaged part of the season. But I'm, I, the timing seems interesting to me anyway. Uh, but you know that's that's playing the system, I guess, and and that's within the rules too. I get that. It just seems that there's that there's a, a motivation here. I'm, I'm trying to read between the lines here. I get this. But when I see something like this come along, I just get the sense that there are some people that just don't seem to want to see this sort of thing happening in their neighborhood. I mean, they, they've complained about anything that's gone on here, and they complained about you know the city's plans for the North End. Uh, I mean, you got a bigger problem here. I mean, you went through this a couple of years ago, and you and I were at loggerheads about what happened with Festival of Friends years ago when you were on council. Because at that time, a ward councillor basically said, look, at the, the neighbourhood residents here don't want parking at Gage Park, so we're going to ban parking. And that essentially forced the festival to Ancaster. Uh, I'd hate to see that same mindset, that NIMBY, that not-in-my-backyard attitude start to prevail here because we're, we're doing some pretty good things in the city here right now, and that's going to drag us back to the 19th century. And, and, Bill, like I said, some of the people that are part of this appeal have been a part of appeals in the area in the past, in the north end. Uh, calling themselves North End Neighbors. Um, uh, they're on this appeal as well. We have spent outside legal $500,000 approximately, close to half a million dollars, and very few, if any, I think, have been successful. So it, it basically succeeds in just dragging out a process that ultimately uh, gets ratified at the OMB. And again, well within their rights, following due process, and I don't begrudge anybody that opportunity because that's the process that's in place. But the reality is it's starting to cost the taxpayers a lot of money. And I have North Enders asking me now, give me a chart of how many of these folks have, have made these appeals. What was the appeal? How, what was the outcome? And in most cases, like I say, if not all, they were unsuccessful. And how much it costs not only now with outside legal, now I'm being asked how much staff time, how much of our own legal time, has been tied up in these OMB appeals over the many, many years as it relates to waterfront development and now music, amplified music on patios. And it's starting to become a bit of the thorn in the side of some of those people who do not want to see delays in the progress and the great rejuvenation that's happening. Because like I say, the large, large majority of North Enders particularly that I speak to, and I feel very confident in saying this, are very much looking forward to all of the elements that are part of the waterfront development. You can see probably the highest assessment growth in the city is in that particular neighborhood, or at least among the highest assessment growth in the city. Uh, so so they're, they're very much enjoying the amenities there that are there now and looking forward to the ones that are planned for the future. Well, and, and this, I, this I, I need the only appeal right now, by the way, that's going on by certain members of this group. I, I need to get some perspective here. When you and I had a discussion a few weeks ago with the the water, Pier A development, the proposed development that was going forward, and, 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 and you and I talked about how, you know, council seemed to be ahead of this, and I got copied on a number of the letters that were there in opposition to this, and... Uh, and I think I made the comment on air that uh, that obviously there are some concerns here, and I'm not so sure that the residents are behind this. I was inundated with emails from people from the North End that said, they don't speak for us. Where do, Don't get the idea that just because somebody sent a letter that the neighborhood's against this. We've talked to this. We're okay with this. Uh, I don't know. You're you're on the ground in that area, Jay. I, I, what's the mood of the people down there? Are they are they behind this, this opposition to the, to, to the mo- music on patios? Uh, is, is this really a major neighborhood concern? Bill, I, I've been a counselor for almost seven years now, representing the North End. They don't speak for us is probably the line I hear most often. So where does that, and again, I, we, I want to reiterate, uh, what they're doing here is well within their legal rights. That's what the OMB Absolutely. is there for under its current Absolutely. under its current intonation anyway. I mean, the OMB may change considerably in the next few months, but as it is right now, they're they're following due process, et cetera. But but you're suggesting this is not uh, that this is not the majority opinion down in the North End. It certainly isn't in other parts of the city. They don't speak for us, is what I hear most often, and, I, and I've been hearing it for almost seven years. We had a I would, going back to my days on council. It wasn't even in my ward, but when I was sitting on the planning committee, uh, we had a development. Uh, I think it was about a six-story condo unit that was supposed to go in in a field that had been vacant for quite some time. It got held up for over two and a half years by one guy. One guy. Uh, not the whole neighborhood. One guy who said he didn't like this. And uh, sadly, the ward councilor just seemed to pacify him and, and held this thing up, which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, of course. 
uh, and and eventually uh, he he caved in because they built a fence for him or something like that. But it, it it's it's one of those things where you see okay the system's in place and we know why the system's in place, sure. so that people can have the right to appeal if they disagree with something. But when people use that system to try to hold up things that the majority are in favor of, you really got to wonder sometimes. Well, again, you got to respect the process. I am quite quite pleased that it's going to be a faster, fairer process the way it's been touted by the province. So, um, unfortunately, that's just not in place just yet. But uh, hopefully, it is fast, it is fair, and it still allows for uh, appellants to come forward, uh, even get support from planners at no cost uh, to defend uh, an argument they may have. But the, the fast and the fair is a really important piece. It's quite a large bill. I think they call it Bill 159. I'm not, don't quote me on that. But it's something that I think a lot of us look forward to because, you know, it's the bureaucracy takes long enough. And part of the reason why it takes so long, the planning process, is because we do spend a great deal of time on engaging on these processes. It's not like we're doing things behind closed doors in a week and a half and then, bang, throwing potentially controversial bylaws out there. This one was well publicized. You talked about it forever. We had engagement sessions. We had public meetings. And and in the end, three or four people stood up, and of those three or four people, half or so are now uh, ex- extending it past this summer season on, on this Canada's 150th birthday, uh, where there's all sorts of planned uh, events and opportunities, not just on outdoor. Patio, no, there's a, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Jay, we got to jump in here. We're happening. just about out of time. Uh, certainly not the end of this. I appreciate you uh, taking the time for us today. We'll uh, talk again later. I'm sure. I know I got heated. I probably get up to point eight. That's okay, there, Bill. That's okay. Nothing wrong but with I passion. Agree. That's uh, a. Appreciate that's, you have me on. That's Councillor Jason Farr from uh, the North End, of course, Ward Two. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, City Council, of course, uh, made allowances for pop-up patios. Those things have been happening all over the place. They had a great, fabulous idea. But as a companion piece to that, they had a pilot project to say, yeah, let's put music out on the patios. That's what people have been asking for. Uh, And they set limits for it. You know, it's not as if, like I said earlier, they're going to blast Megadeth all night long out of these things. It was supposed to be, you know, in in a, a... unusual way that the people are going to find amenable in communities. Now there has been an Ontario Municipal Board appeal to that bylaw and uh, because they frankly don't want to see this happen. Uh, now the appeal is probably not going to be heard until late into the summer, if at all, uh, before the fall. So that pretty much kills the idea of music on the patios. Uh, should there be music on Hamilton patios or are these residents who are blocking this right? Should we shut this down altogether? The council decision to allow music on outdoor patios in the summertime? Or do you think they should shut it down like this neighborhood group does? We're going to go to your calls in a couple of minutes. Before we do that, though, you can line up right now and get into the queue. I want to bring our friend uh, Ben McVie. And Ben, of course, is the co-host of the Y108 Morning Show with Ben, Shauna, and Chris, our sister station just uh, down the hall here at the Radio Center in the west end of the city. Uh, first of all, thanks for hanging around after the program. And Good I, morning, sir. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, as I was wandering down the hall today, uh, talking with my producer about getting our program ready, I, I heard segments of your show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got a lot of feedback from your listeners about this today. I sure did, yeah. And uh, none of it was good. Nobody's looking at this particularly favorably. And I, I think the, the thing that, uh, the point that was driven home the most is, I know there's a stigma, oh, well, of course, they're a rock station, they're going to want loud music. But we're talking about 60 decibels. This is, you know, I've heard the the dishwasher thing, the average human voice from 3 to 5 feet is 60 to 70 decibels. So whether or not, what format or style of music you're into, we're talking about two acoustic guitars singing Leaving on a Jet Plane being too loud. Right. It's it's and again, I, I like what you just said. It's not a matter of loud, blaring, ridiculously over the top music, but we're talking about music of all kinds, basically. And the, the question that I have, and I think that a lot of people uh, they raised on my show was, are we going to be allowed to converse on a patio? Because well, if it's a sound issue. Does the human voice qualify too? Should we ban that? That's what I mean. That was you're a, only allowed to whisper on a patio, and that's a very common question. Is somebody is a bylaw officer going to come around and tell me to be quiet when I'm holding a conversation just like the one I'm holding with you now? You know, you know what I find interesting. This and let's let's use comparators here. 
Uh, you're going to go into the grocery store later on today mm-hmm. and and you, to get your milk and butter and, and whatever you're going to get. There's music playing inside the, the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It's it's at that level. It is. Uh, again, I, And nobody I, says, turn that stuff down. For God's sakes, I can't concentrate. I did a number of measures. A dial tone. If you pick up your phone, your handheld phone, a dial tone uh, is 80 decibels. So we're talking about you can play music so long as it's three quarters the volume of a dial tone. It's uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. I was one of the people, and I'm, I know you guys talked about it on your program on Y108 as well, but for the last few years, uh, as, as we've traveled around, as I say, our daughter lives up in Barrie, and we've gone up there for dinner a few times, and, and their downtown area, they started. They were the first ones with pop-up patios. Well, I had a Hamilton anyway, uh, and music, uh, and outdoor music, and I thought, this is really cool. What a great ambiance for downtown. Yep. People walking up and down the street and, uh, and, and, and just enjoying the music, enjoying the atmosphere there. Uh, we spent a fair bit of time in Collingwood and Blue Mountain, same thing. And it's interesting because, I mean, when you, you talk to some of the people who live up there, frankly, a, a lot of the folks who are moving up there right now are of the, shall we say, the, the plus 50 demographic. Mm-hmm. But they love this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, I'm 46. I live in Westdale. I'm r- right on King in Westdale, and there are two of those patios set up right now. About a block away from you. Just directly, yeah, right outside my door pretty much. And uh, they're great. They're a nice little addition to, to the neighborhood. It's just there's a vibrancy to it, you know. And, that and you're a guy. Nice and- you're a guy, by the way, to to try to anticipate <clears throat> somebody who's going to say, "Well, what if you're trying?" To-? You're a guy that has to get up early in the morning to get in here to do this show. Never bothers. And me. you're not one of these guys that says, "I can't get to sleep." That music by the patio's blaring. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. it's not right now. And that that's the other thing too is a, a few people brought up the fact that in some of these areas where, uh, let's say, you live near James North or near Hess or whatever. You probably should have done, if, if, if you're opposed to noise of any kind, why did you move there in the first place? I, I, I think that's a valid question. I mean, you should know what you're getting into in terms of your neighborhood and what goes on around it before you, you, you check schools, you check crime rates, you check cleanliness and safety and all those sorts of things. You would think you would want to know what noise levels are like and what recreation goes on or, uh, near your home. And if it turns out that there's going to be music of some kind and that's going to bother you, well, then move somewhere else. Well, there's a buyer beware clause in some situations. Yeah. And, and I know that there are some people that are going to say, well, you know, I, we've been down there long before these things were there. And, and, and I, I kind of get that to so a do point. I. But you, so do I. But there were still things that were there. But there's another element to this. And you saw this happen during the stadium construction. You used to live near the stadium, too. That's right, yeah. And, and there were people that were complaining that uh, we don't want the stadium here, we don't want the noise here. I said, well, you know what? It was there when you bought the house. What did you think was going to happen? Yep. All right? I mean, it, it, this is not like a Maple Leaf game where nobody makes any noise. I mean, it's noisy. <laughs> You're going to live near a stadium. Yep. Same thing if you live near an entertainment district. There's going to be some ambient noise. Yeah. Uh, we heard the same thing when people started building houses over by the link up on the mountain, you know, after they got the road built. People say, yeah, we, we, we're going to build houses there. And all of a sudden, we started getting complaints from the people that bought them. Says, well, there's a lot of traffic noise. The road was there when you bought the house. What yeah. did you think was going to happen? Yeah, this this whole thing, the, the thing, the shame of, is, of it is, is, is uh, I've lived here for 10 years. And the gentrification downtown and the, the art scene, which is really starting to thrive, and some great restaurants and everything, it just feels like this throws a, a a crowbar in the spokes. Do you know what I mean? It just halts all of that. And here we are, we're celebrating 150 years this summer. The nation's in the mood for for a celebration, and we have completely ground that to a halt. And one of my callers this morning, just real quick, I know you want to take some calls, but one of my callers said this morning, can you imagine if this were to happen during the Euro or the World Cup, where people are packed into these bars to watch soccer and are honking their horns afterwards and enjoying themselves responsibly, I mean, if if that would have happened then, all of these businesses that thrive on events like that, on events like Canada 150 and the World Cup, are going to suffer. I feel bad for the businesses that are going to lose out because of this, what I call a ridiculous, ridiculous bylaw. Ben McVie, uh, host, of course, of the Y108 Morning Show on our sister station, Y108. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for hanging around. Thank you for having me, Enjoy a nice, quiet weekend. Yes, I I don't have any choice now. (laughs) Wear earbuds if you're going to listen to music. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you. Uh, Ben mentioned, uh, what about the people that have skin in the game? Well, and by that, I mean people that have invested in these businesses. Well, Dean Collette is one of them. And Dean, of course, is is an owner of a few of the properties and businesses in Hess Village uh, that would have been impacted, would have been impacted by uh, this latest uh, legal maneuver here. And uh, Dean joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Dean. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm well. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I was kind of looking forward to uh, 
uh, as I say, maybe sipping a tall cold one down by one of your establishments and uh, enjoying some music, but all I'm going to hear is the sounds of silence, and I don't mean the Simon and Garfunkel song. Well, and just to expand on that a little bit, Bill, um, you know, people don't also don't realize that this band also includes television. So at, at Toy, we built a, uh, an outdoor enclosure probably six years ago for a plasma TV in our patio because it was uh, to take advantage of uh, whether it's World Cup, whether it's the Blue Jays, uh, you know, Stanley Cup playoffs. So when people are on the patio, they can watch and listen to the game. And, you know, when uh, they started uh, uh, enforcing this bylaw strictly, we had to take the TV right out. And, you know, we, so it's not just ambient music. You're not allowed to have any type of entertainment on your patio. Nothing. <sighs> Listen, and let's, let's put this again. And I'm trying to put this in context because uh, some of the people listening to this conversation, Dean, may say, well, you know, they, you got to respect neighbors. And I get that. Uh, but you've been in, in Hess for quite some time, and, and you know that there are an awful lot of the neighbors that just say, you know what, we're going to buy an entertainment district, it's there. There are others that b- move into that area and all of a sudden think, well, we want complete silence, we want our reverie in the evenings. Uh, and I get the fact that there's never going to be 100% agreement on this, but if you live in this and if, you, if the city wants to promote entertainment districts, is is this not part of, of that big picture to, to have that kind of entertainment. And again, you know, I, I, the, 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 the decibel levels that the city set on here were, I, I think, well within the range of reason. Okay, so, so let's just unpackage that a little bit. First of sure. all, this, this, uh, people that are, you know, possibly involved in this appeal or other people that are uh, sort of nervous about having uh, entertainment on patios, they're motivated by fear, and one of the biggest causes of fear is misinformation. So let's be clear about what was being proposed, because I think a lot of people don't have a, a real clear picture. So we're not talking about something where, first of all, any type of music or entertainment is allowed beyond 11 p.m. That's number one, and that's a really key and important point. And I understand that, because quiet enjoyment in your own home after 11 p.m. should be something that is, is sacrosanct, Okay. Uh, with regards to, you know, having to listen to something or loud music. So I get all that, number one. Number two, we are talking about a 60-decibel level. We're not talking about something where the music is so loud that it becomes a constant uh, source of frustration. Even from an operator's point of view, I, I'm uh, in favor of having decibel-level uh, uh, feelings because, for instance, in Hess Village or on, on James Street or Augusta Street, where there are patios located next to each other from from neighbor business or competing businesses. If one of my neighbors has his music at, say, 100 decibels, then people in my patio are affected. So what you can end up ha- having is, is sort of these music wars, where one patio that's just situated next to the other patio, they start competing with each other for the amount of music. You see it in certain things like, uh, like if you go to like a food show. Yeah, there's different, I'm sorry. There's different foods. You don't want to have competing music. So in, there's been instances, Bill, over the years where I've actually called bylaw because, you know, most of my neighbors are great, but I've had the odd neighbor that, frankly, is, is inconsiderate, not just to the people that live in the neighborhood, but to neighboring businesses. These things are all in place, and none of them will be affected by this bylaw. And so I think that's the most important thing here. Councilor Farr has, has been working on this uh, for at least four years that I know of because that's when I got involved with him. He contacted me and said, listen, there's been a lot of sort of back and forth on this, on this music issue. Can, can we get together? Let's talk about what you think is a good compromise. And he proposed this compromise, and to me it checked all the boxes for everyone. And he's done a really good job of listening to all the stakeholders. And to me, what they put forward at council, led by Councillor Farr, was actually, in my mind, Bill, it was a no-brainer. Because it really... It, 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 it touches upon all of the concerns that anybody would have in this issue. Dean, I don't know where this is going to go. It just looks as if, uh, like you say, it's going to be a, a rather quiet summer here around here, and I think it's a huge step backwards. Listen, thanks so much. I know it's a busy time for you. I appreciate you taking a few minutes for us today. Anytime, Bill. Thanks. Dean Collette, of course, uh, from Coy and a number of other places over in Hess Village. Because uh, they're impacted by this. Uh, this, is, this is not just a North End situation. To your calls, 905-645-3221. Start nine nine hundred. Do you agree with the uh, the the citizens group that want to put the kibosh on on music uh, on the patios, or do you think that we should be allowed to do that, as city council suggested? Len, thank you for holding on. Welcome to the program today, Len. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be.
be on the show. Thank you. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, it's Glenn with a G in front. I'm sorry. Go, it's okay. No uh, yeah, I'm definitely uh, in opposition to this citizens group's move to slow down the approval of the, uh, the pilot project. I think that uh, when I was just listening to Councillor Farr, he shows uh, really good leadership in terms of putting the downtown onto the map with its music and trying to just facilitate that music on patios or amplified music. Uh, you know, Dean Collette's point was also, you know, I agree with him, how, you know, it's not just music, it's TVs out there and there are bylaws in place and the, the restrictions that are described in the bylaw exemption, they're all very reasonable. Uh, I think what we saw there with that uh, OMB appeal was just an attempt by a few people to slow it down who have this kind of an archaic view of what their north end urban neighborhood should be like. Well, it's uh, it's working, and, and they're working well within the uh, the legal boundaries. We need to reiterate that, too. But uh, but you know, you, you got to wonder what, what their long-term goal is in a situation like this. And what I find interesting, Glenn, thank you for the call, by the way, is that, you know, we had talked about this for quite some time, and there were some legitimate concerns about people saying, yeah, you know, we, we don't want this going on all night. We don't want any music at 12 o'clock at night. And I think the bylaw addressed an awful lot of those issues. This was supposed to be the compromise that it was going to address some of those, but at the same time allow this to happen as a pilot project, and let's see how it flies. And and clearly we're not even at first base with this now, so it's uh, I, I don't know if there's a sense of inevitability to this, because you have no idea how the OMB is going to rule on this, but we just know that it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Jen, you're on the Bill Kelly Show. Welcome to the program, Jen. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm well, thanks. What are your thoughts on this? I think that, I mean, there are a couple factors that people haven't discussed, and that's the, the other businesses that will be affected. So I live by Tim Hortons Field, and I'll give you a for instance. Our very small variety store is fantastic, but if you come on game night or concert night or whatever, they've got five guys working behind the, the uh, counter there, and they're fully stocked. And they make a ton of money, and it's great revenue for their business. And all the other small businesses just like that really see a surge during that time. When you're taking away from the atmosphere on places like James Street and Hess Street and really kind of handcuffing them to this archaic idea of quiet, you're making it so that other businesses that piggyback off of that have a hard time to survive. Like, if you've ever gone to the shawarma shop after going to Hess, you know, it's packed right oh yeah, so, the, yeah the place you i know on king street yeah yeah it's it's amazing it's one of the best in the city but and it's those <laughs> little little places that piggyback off of this atmosphere that are going to really feel the pain because these bars and stuff like that that still have an indoor crowd and seven months of the year when it's cold they still get the, those revenues they'll survive but those other little places that really get by by that surge in crowds they're going to have a hard time. And I think the other thing is, too, is we live so close to neighboring communities, right? Like um, the GHA is pretty large. However, I'm 10 minutes from Burlington, really, um, you know, 20 minutes from Brantford or some of the other small towns like Caledonia that have a really great atmosphere in their downtown core. If I'm going to James Street and it's quiet and I can't, you know, go from shop to shop with a real lively atmosphere, I'm probably just going to go somewhere else. You know, there there so, are communities that I've visited that actually have music pumped out on the street uh, because yeah. it adds to the ambiance. Well, and I travel a lot, and I travel mostly in the States. My mom lives there half the year. So um, I just came back from Vegas, for example, and I can't imagine moving down, you know, beside the Flamingo Hotel and then complaining about the lights. You know, I just... <laughs> That makes no sense to me. Why do you move to Hess and then say, you know what, you can't have a TV on your patio. I'm, I think I'm going to complain to bylaw. That is just, you know, that to me is completely out of this world. So I think one of the big factors, too, is that a couple of places, and I, I certainly won't say names, but a couple of places have ruined it for the rest and really taken advantage of residents. Um, you had uh, the owner of Koi on there, and he sounds like a very responsible owner, and I've been there many times, and he's a great guy. But you've got some other places that really took advantage of the lack of control over the bylaws to begin with and really kind of hammered it home and didn't work with the residents. And so 
those are the neighborhoods that have really come up and banded together and are pushing this through, right? Like well, and down yeah, by but, the waterfront. But that's why there are bylaws and that's why there are regulations and stipulations and parameters set. And for those that don't adhere to them, yeah, that's what the enforcement's for. We get that. And that's already in place. So, you know, there, as, as Dean Collette from from, uh, from Hess Village told us, there are going to be right. once in a while, there are going to be people that are going to, you know, go beyond the rounds. And, and that's when you come down on them and say, okay, you got to play by the rules. Same as, you know, traffic control and everything else. For those that break the rules, yeah, you come down on them. But you set the rules in, in a manner that you think is going to be comfortable for everybody. And I think they've done that here. And that, that seems to be the problem. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, though, the Supreme Court is expected to rule today on a closely watched case that could provide clarity about targets for an accused criminal's right to a timely trial. Now, justices are going to render a decision in the case of uh, an individual by the name of James Cody, who's an accused drug trafficker from Newfoundland, who has argued that his charter rights were violated when he had to wait five years for a trial. And, And obviously his... Legal team is saying, well, that's way too long. Uh, there are so many complications and, and pre-existing uh, judgments about this that factor into this. So we wanted to get some legal clarity on this. And to that end, we're so glad, uh, pleased rather, to welcome back to the program Todd White, criminal lawyer and barrister from Toronto, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Todd, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning. Thank you. Could, maybe before we get to what they're going to be deciding today, could you walk us through a little bit of the history here as to how we got to this point? Well, before I do that, how about if I tell you that they've already decided? Uh, there's an idea. The judgment just came out. Uh, they overturned the Court of Appeal and uh, upheld the original stay of proceedings for unreasonable delay. Okay, now you can explain what that means. <laughs> um, the Charter provides, just like most uh, uh, charters around the world, including the U.S. Constitution, um, that an accused person is entitled to be tried within a reasonable amount of time. Um, the original case in the Supreme Court of Canada many years ago was a, a case called Moran. Uh, they decided that a, a provincial court trial had to take between six to eight months. Uh, and uh, and then once it goes up upstairs to the Superior Court, another six to eight months. Um, but then the too many charges were getting stayed, and they tweaked the test over years um, to show have the accused show that he was prejudiced by the delay. Um, and that made the, the whole process very, very complicated. You had to submit all the transcripts and affidavits and evidence and unreasonable delay applications were taking months to get heard and to get argued. So the Supreme Court of Canada in Jordan uh, said that we're not going to go through this. We're going to uh, extend the deadlines for unreasonable delay. And uh, many of the defense lawyers across the country were very upset by Jordan because uh, it said that a provincial court trial uh, could take up to 30 months. And as a, as a lawyer for over 25 years, I can tell you that most of my clients uh, all of my clients are concerned about why things take so long. It's scary enough to be charged with a criminal offense, whether you're guilty or not guilty, but having to wait uh, for a year or two years, let alone more than two years, uh, for your provincial court trial um, was seen as, uh, you know, absolutely distressing and just completely unreasonable. Why, on that point then, Todd, why does it take so long? Um, there are many factors. Most of the, most of the factors include uh, uh, under underfunded uh, courts. Um, there are just, you know, so many jurisdictions, like Brampton is the perfect example. Brampton's one of the, and Mississauga is one of the fastest growing cities in the country, um, and they just don't have the resources um, and judges and crowns uh, to get things done quicker. That's one of the reasons that the first case was taken to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada called uh, Peel the worst case north of the Rio Grande worst court system. <laughs> yeah. and so that's where the unreasonable lay uh, judgments uh, have evolved. Was that with jurisdiction a couple of years ago where one judge just walked in one day and I think threw a whole truckload of things out and just said this is ridiculous? That's happened a number of times. Okay. Because, you know, and, you know, and, and now the judges are a lot more vigilant when it comes to, to delay. You can't just adjourn and adjourn and adjourn. Um, but, but again, there's other factors as well. Sometimes it takes many, many months to get crown disclosure. Um, and you, you know, you have to wait. There's nothing you can do about it. So, today's decision uh, upheld the Jordan decision, and they ruled that whether you applied the old test or the new test, it was obscene to have to wait five years for a five-day trial. You know, there's no reason in in real life why that couldn't have taken a year or a year and a half. You know, and five years was 
just completely unreasonable. When they announced uh, the, the the initial parameters, the ones that you just talked to us about a couple of minutes ago, about uh, 18 months or whatever, the numbers there, uh, that obviously was not an arbitrary number. How did they arrive at that figure? <laughs> I think it actually is pretty arbitrary. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, they they distilled all the all the case law and uh, and found that you know 18 months, 30 months is is uh, the absolute maximum. And then if you're if you're if your case goes outside that, then the burden of proof falls on the crown to justify it. And there's there's a number of ways that a crown can justify why it took so long. The complexity of the case, um, you know, adjournments by the defense that were not necessary, um, and so they it, it sort of shifts the burden to the crown instead of on the accused. When you say though an adjournment uh, by, for instance, in this case, the defense that is quote unquote not necessary. Who makes that judgment? Is that based on the uh, the the, uh, the judgment that the uh, the magistrate made at the time of the request for the adjournment, or is it yeah, made in that's, hindsight? That's what the Supreme Court of Canada. No, no, it's it's made it's made based on the transcripts. Okay. Um, of all the court proceedings um, since the beginning of of the of the charge being laid, and the the trial judge who hears the unreasonable delay application will make that determination. Okay, so they've arrived at these numbers right now, and, and it just seemed to me from the feedback I heard from talking for people like you and other lawyers that are involved in the system, Todd, that nobody seemed to be happy with the numbers that the, the Supreme Court came out with then, and it just didn't seem it was workable. And I heard that from both sides of the fence. That's true, and, and, it, and, and it's, uh, you know, it certainly cut down on the amount of unreasonable delay applications that are going to be made. Um, but this case, you know, the, the press has, has gone, you know, they can't believe that you know drug charges and serious charges are stayed, um, but they have to be. You know this poor Cody guy, five years to get a trial. It's just offensive. So where are we now with this? And and, and as a result of the Supreme Court hearing right now, uh, and and specifically with with the Cody situation here. By the way, was there was there any justification as to why it took five years? I I assume uh, the burden is on the Crown here to express why it, it took so long for them to bring this, or is it uh, just a number system here? No, they, they they do a detailed analysis of of the various delays that took place, and the trial judge uh, found that they were that they were unreasonable and the result of mostly of the Crown and of the court system. So as a result, I mean, cases were adjourned for lack of disclosure, and the new disclosure arises. Um, and so the Crown tried to argue that it was a really complex case, but the trial judge said it wasn't that complex. There were search warrants and a confidential informant, um, but that doesn't make it any more complex than most drug cases. And so even if it was complex, there's no reason it should have taken five years. This may seem like an exaggeration, uh, this case, five years, oh, that's ridiculous. But do you find that this is happening more often than not, Todd, with, anecdotally from your experience in the courts? That cases are taking five years? Well, not quite five, but I mean, not, ex- not more even, than they really even, should? Not even close to that. I mean, nowadays in most jurisdictions, you can get a, a preliminary hearing date or a trial date when you're ready to set a date, you know, in, in you know, four to eight months. So there's no reason why it should take uh, any longer than the guidelines in Jordan. Because we have seen situations where, I guess in some cases, defense teams uh, the, that we've heard of anyway are, are kind of ragging the puck and, you know, we need to delay this, we need to delay this, et cetera, et cetera, and hearings can drag on for the longest time right now. But but the, they're on the clock right now, so obviously that puts the pressure on them to make sure that they don't do that. Correct. Absolutely, because the Supreme Court of Canada again affirmed today um, that uh, waiver of delay by the defense and defense applications for adjournments and delay uh, that are not reasonable uh, count against the accused in, in de- time determining the total number. Let me ask you from a, a practical standpoint, and you know, this is a, uh, obviously a rights uh, decision here, you know, based on, on the charter. We get that. But as, as somebody who's there on the ground uh, in, in, in those cases, Todd, when there's a delay that's as long as, as some of the ones that you've been describing in the past right now, how does that impact the job that you're able to do, as, for instance, as a, as a defense lawyer? Um, it doesn't really affect my ability to, to defend a case. Um, it, it, sometimes it even helps if there's a, a delay in a, in a case. I recently had a sexual assault trial that started about a year and a half ago, um, and it had to be adjourned because the, the main witness needed some time for something. And we uh, set further days, months down the road, and then the court was unavailable, so they had to be adjourned. It doesn't affect my ability to defend my client but it makes the client hysterical. 
you know, they have this cloud hanging over their head. They expect it to be done by a certain date, and then it's adjourned for months and months and years, and, and it makes them crazy. But from the standpoint of, of, of for instance, witnesses, testimony, uh, memories tend to fade after three years or five years as opposed to, to 18 months, I mean, I, I would think that it would have some sort of an impact that way. And, 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 and again, it's mostly going to be have an impact on the Crown's witnesses. Okay. Um, because if, you know, they, they take a look at a statement they gave, you know, two years or three years ago, and it may refresh their memory, um, but they may have a different recollection of it now. And uh, so time can change your recollection, and it's, and it's not good for Crown witnesses. There's, I, I've read some of the feedback on social media about this, and I hardly take that as a barometer of, of what's right or what's wrong, but it is out there. And it's amazing when they refer to cases like uh, the one that uh, the Supreme Court talked about here today, and they say, well, you know, these are bad guys, what the heck's the matter with that? But we, that's the assumption of guilt, and that's not the way our system works. I mean, we have to correct. assume that these people are all innocent until such time as, as it's proven otherwise. You're exactly correct. You're presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. Um, and, you know, and understand, you know, in our system, uh, 50% of all criminal charges result in a guilty plea of some form or another, and only 50% of them go to trial. And of the 50%, more than 50% are convicted, and the rest are acquitted or charges are stayed. So we have a very good conviction rate. Um, but someone who goes to trial, it's usually because they have triable issues, or they're not guilty, or there are, are arguments that can, can be made. And I always tell you know, people who are critical of the system, where you stand depends upon where you sit. And you can be critical in your armchair, but if you're charged with a criminal offense, um, and, and as you well know from the Gameshi case, um, you know, your career gets suspended, you get fired, and every day that goes by, you're unemployed or unemployable, um, and it can ruin, ruin your life. Well, and, and that's, that's something that doesn't get told. That's a story that oftentimes is simply uh, ignored in situations like this, as somebody's waiting for 18 months or three years or whatever the case might be for a trial. Uh, as, as a defense lawyer, and the Gameshi case is, is obviously a high-profile individual, so we did read about that. Uh, and, and people are going to say, well, you know, because of the accusations, well, maybe the guy had it coming to him. He should have got served by the CBC. But, but you're, but, right. but you're presumption of guilt. Well, again, exactly. But you know that was out there anyway, right? after we saw some of the, the stuff that was being said about, uh, you know, not Gamashi and about some of the things that went on in the workplace. But you're defending people that we don't know, people that don't have that profile or don't have that platform right now. Correct. If they're waiting two and three years for a trial, what's happening to their lives? Are, are they losing their jobs? Or what happens to their family life? I mean, you know, this, they've got this big black cloud hanging over them. Correct. And, and, and you know, every person has a different situation. But uh, some people's lives are totally ruined and turned upside down. Um, even for simple charges like a, a, an over 80 charge, you know, you're charged with over 80 and you're immediately, your license is suspended for 90 days. And, you know, if you're a cab driver or a truck driver, you may get suspended without pay um, until the matter is resolved. Uh, and so their life can be turned upside down. They can't afford to feed their family. They can't afford to retain counsel. And it becomes a, a vicious, vicious circle. And we all hear stories about people that have been wrongfully accused and in some cases wrongfully incarcerated after a trial and, and maybe some months, some years later, in some cases, uh, vindication. And, and I know that there is a legal avenue for them to follow about some sort of retribution. But if you're charged and your life, you go through this, this hell uh, for a period of time and then you're found to be not guilty of this charge, uh, is there any avenue at all for you to try to get your life back or for it to be compensated for the, the problems that have been caused because of this? Absolutely not, unless in a few rare circumstances it's due to the incompetence or uh, negligence, severe negligence of the police. And you can, you can then sue the police for wrongful arrest or wrongful incarceration. Um, but those cases are very few and far between. Um, and most people don't even consider it. And I tell most of my clients, you can go and speak to a civil lawyer now that you've been exonerated, um, but there's not much you can do. Now, if, if, if the charges are laid as a result of a complaint by an individual citizen, let's say um, I allege that you, you threatened to kill me uh, while we were off the air, and you get charged. And I understand, if I, if I tell the police that you uttered a death threat, they will come to your workplace, they will arrest you, they will handcuff you, take you down to the station, and the whole process starts. Um, if it turns out that I was lying and, I, and you get acquitted, um, you may be able to sue me personally for giving false information to the police. But understand, um, that costs money to sue people. 
and and it may well be that the person who laid the complaint has no funds anyway. If they have a, a regular nine to five job where they make minimum wage, um, you, you can get a judgment against them, but there's no way you're ever going to collect. Because you always wonder, uh, you know, if, and again to equate this to TV dramas, I guess you know they'll say, you know, you know, congratulations, Mr. White, you've been found not guilty, you are free to go. Uh, but what happens when they walk through that courtroom door, go back out into the real world right now? How do they get their life back together? They, they may not. I, I had a client who was charged um, with sexual assault, um, and he was absolutely innocent of the allegation. Um, and his charge lasted for, for years, and it was an historic charge. Um, and the moment he was charged, he was, he was banned from going to his church. The entire community knew about it because it made the local paper. Um, none of his friends and family would speak to him. He was suspended. Uh, I think he was a teacher at a school, and he was suspended without pay. He had to go and move and get another another job at a different school. And he he was not only in, for the, one of the first times in my career. He was not just acquitted on a basis of a reasonable doubt. He was exonerated by the judge. He testified. The judge said that she believed him, that he, he was telling the truth, and that these allegations were false. Um, he thought that would you know he walked out of courtroom and he thought his life would go back to normal, and it was exactly the opposite. Um, they, they thought that he got off in a technicality and, you know, you hired a big-shot Toronto lawyer. And we don't care what the judge said. You're not welcome. And people's, and, and again, you know, most people think that an accused person who's acquitted, um, you know, they were acquitted, but they're still guilty. Well, okay, yeah, because in other words, they quote-unquote beat the system. Correct. And Because and uh, I've heard this, and I'm sure you have in your experience too, Todd, where they'll say, yeah, well, you know, they arrested him in the first place, so there had to be something there. Everyone thinks that. Yeah. Everyone thinks that. And, and, and understand most criminal charges, uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, police investigations or undercover operations for drug charges and that. Most allegations are made um, by regular citizens who claim something happens to them. And the police are, you know, instructed that they have to take the case as if it's true. And that's their basic uh, premise for starting any investigation, that whatever the witnesses say to the police are true. Um, and the process starts, and they only have to make an arrest based on mere reasonable grounds. There's a human cost and a human story behind each and every one of these cases. And, uh, and, that's, and why, that's why my rule is, it, you know, where you stand on an issue depends upon where you sit. Absolutely. Uh, Todd, thank you so much for the time today, uh, for the update on the Supreme Court decision, first of all, but also for an explanation as to exactly what actually goes on here. We always appreciate our conversations. Uh, have a great weekend. No problem. Thank you. You too. Take care. Todd White, of course, criminal lawyer and barrister, uh, with the uh, reiteration of the Supreme Court decision and the impact it's going to have. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.